other thing I want you to see again in this passage of Scripture is because God is not willing that any should perish, He uses time to accomplish His redemptive ends. And this is why Peter says in verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is of, as a day. And what I want you to see here is that once again, as we've noted in the past, Peter is engaging his people, his congregation, we might say, in a very pastoral way. I love it when I see uh, the word beloved on the, on the lips of these, or on the pen of the, uh, of the biblical writers. It's showing to us something of that affection that they have for those for whom Christ died. It shows us something of the tenderness with which they treat the people of God. It shows us something of how we are to see one another. We are all one another together, beloved in Christ. And so we engage one another that way, even as Peter does here. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. But you see, Peter's pastoral care and pastoral responsibility doesn't make him in any way negligent to focus on specific things. Peter, in one sense, prioritizes the thinking of the church of Jesus Christ. He says this, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. He's saying, listen, when it comes to this whole matter of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the scoffing that you hear, you have to have certain things prioritizing your thinking. And what you have to have prioritizing your thinking is, number one, the very nature of God. This is the failure of the scoffers. The scoffers are very, how can I say this? They are very willing to judge God by their own standards. And in judging God by their own standards, they fail to see that there is in the nature of God an eternal being. He is the eternal God. And the, and the time has no, in one sense, bearing on pressuring God. God knows how to use time to his own ends. But when the fullness of time was come, Paul says, you see, there's this whole idea that God makes use of time in order to accomplish redemptive ends. But what do the scoffers do with the idea of time? They use time to judge God by it. And Peter is saying, beloved, don't be ignorant of this. Kind of interesting when he brings in this idea of ignorance. Don't be ignorant of this thing. He is kind of picking up on what he said earlier, I believe it was in verse 4 or 5, about the scoffers themselves. For this they are willingly ignorant. The scoffers are ignorant of, of, of certain things, but don't you be ignorant of certain things. The scoffers were ignorant about God's use of the creation. Don't you be ignorant of God's use of the creation. Because the scoffers were ignorant of God's use of the creation, they were showing something of an ignorance, an ignorance about the nature of God himself. Don't you be ignorant about the nature of God. And so what we have to see is this, is what Peter is saying to his people is essentially, listen, understand who it is that you are dealing with. You are dealing with the eternal God. Oh, you see, our times are in his hands, are they not? All of the, the, the ups and downs in life, all the twists and turns, and yet God is always there for us. Circumstances may seem to make us think that that's not the case. Circumstances may think that we're forsaken of God, that God is apart from us and God is not there, but God is always there. He is the great I am. In your moment of joy, in your moment of difficulty, in your moment of perplexity, God is there. All of time is a moment in the presence of the eternal God. And so Peter, again, emphasizing uh, this thought, again, do not be ignorant of this one thing. Well, it's a great thing to know God, isn't it? To know God in all the turns of life. This is what we need. That there is, in the mind of the believer, through the revelation that God has given in Scripture, something about a knowledge of God. And I hope that's precious to you. I really do. I hope you're not afraid to say, I don't know many things, but I know one thing. I know God loves me. I know God has revealed himself to me. I know God has given his son for me. 
Jeremiah the prophet picks this up. Matter of fact, I think I preached from this passage of scripture very early uh, in, my, in my time here. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glory glories in this, that he knoweth and understands me, that I am the Lord which exercised loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Oh, do you want something to glory in? Glory in the fact that you know this God. Did you notice something of a parallel idea? There in 2 Peter chapter 3, God's, God, by way of his eternal nature, is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Here in Jeremiah, again, that the, I am the Lord, which exercised loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. Oh, you see, when we talk about these things, we're talking about those things that God delights in. Let a rich man boast in his riches. God will boast in his mercy. Let a mighty man boast in his might. God will, uh, will, will boast or take glory in the fact that, again, nothing can pre uh, pre prevent his, uh, his, his, his ways. And so, again, this idea of our knowing God. Well, again, God's uh, use of time then, God's use of time in order to bring about the conversion of his elect, God's use of time because he desires uh, none to perish is something, as I, say, as, as I said before, we see very clearly in this passage of scripture. And what's interesting is this passage of scripture, again, verse 8, uh, days with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. What's kind of interesting is that this is really a theme that's picked up from the Old Testament. David wrote something very close to these words, did he not? We read uh, Psalm 90 this morning, and again, in verse 4, we could have read down where David says this, For a thousand years in thy sight are as but yesterday, when it was passed as a watch in the night. A thousand years are as yesterday, essentially the same thing that Peter was saying. Isaiah picked up the same thing when he says this in Isaiah 57, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. So what we see is essentially this. Here is Peter. Here is David. Here is Isaiah. And then preaching the same thing. These men, again, come together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they make known this great fact that the eternal God desires the salvation of sinners. And that the eternal God will indeed secure the salvation of his people. And so again, Peter making these things known. And he is saying to us, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Now, again, you know, it's, it's interesting when we take a look at, the, at God's use of time in order to bring about his, uh, his, uh, his purposes. Uh, one of the things that we see is, again, that one day with God is nothing. A thousand, days, a thousand years is nothing. God is not so much concerned about chronology as much as he is concerned about the bringing about of his purposes. So, my brother and sister, be, be patient. Be patient with the Lord. Don't, again, fall into the trap of the scoffers. Don't judge God by your standards, whether it be by the standard of time or whether it be by the standard of anything else. Allow God, if I can say it this way, allow God to be who He is and who He's revealed Himself to be in the Scripture. And so, again, God making use of time in order to bring about His benevolent end. And as I said before, while God is eternal and God resides, in a sense, above time, God knows how to make good use of time, doesn't he? This is exactly what Paul means in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time was come, did you notice that? The fullness of time. You see, the eternal God knows when the fullness of time is. 
We've heard our friends say, well, why didn't, why didn't Jesus come when there was TV? You know, all those of us who are old enough would say that. And the younger would say, why didn't he come when there was the internet? <clears throat> well, God knew when the fullness of time was. And again, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. That's what the eternal God is able to do. Since all of time is before God in a moment, as it were, and God is there in that moment in the fullness of his being, he knows when the fullness of time is. And so in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. And notice why he sent them forth. Again, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Do you see and understand? Whatever we see in the word of God by way of great overtures to sinners everywhere, there always seems to be in the scripture this emphasis on a particular love that God has for his own. There's many things that cause us to sometimes wonder about these things, but we must revel in these things nonetheless. If I don't fully understand how it can be that God offers salvation to all and secures the, the, the salvation of some, I don't fully understand that, but I rejoice in it. I rejoice in it and somehow, in some way, in spite of myself, God opened these eyes and these ears and this mind and this heart in order to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to close that off to anybody else. By the grace of God, my, 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 my offer of the gospel is going to be as large as wherever sinners are found. But at the same token, by the same token, neither am, I, neither am I going to deny passages of scripture like this which is in front of us. Again, as Paul says, why did Christ come in the fullness of time to redeem them that are under the law that we, the people of God, might receive the adoption of sons? And so again, the wonder and the beauty of this. Paul speaks about the fullness of time also in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says this, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and, both, and which are in the earth, even in him. You see that in the fullness of time, he might gather all things together in Christ. We talked last week, didn't we, about the, 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 what we would call the differentiation in the love of God. We talked about that love of benevolence. Do you remember that? Do you remember what the love of benevolence is? The love of benevolence is God's will to do good to all, all creatures everywhere. We read of that in Psalm 145, that his goodness extends over all. His goodness goes to all creatures everywhere. God's goodness is seen everywhere in creation. It's this love of benevolence. It's by way of nature as the sun shines out its rays. So God shines out love and goodness. But there was also, you remember, that love of beneficence. And what was the love of beneficence? The love of beneficence is not just the willing of good, but the doing of good. You know, the passage of Scripture in the Gospels, that God sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. He not only wills the good, he does good. But then we also saw that in a very wonderful way, very unique way in the sense. There is that love of complacency. And it's that love that God has for his own, particularly those who are in Christ. In one sense, the perfect object of the love of God is Jesus Christ himself. And this is why Paul says that we are now accepted, not in ourselves, but we are accepted in the beloved. <clears throat> and so my friends, I ask you this morning, are you in Christ? Are you in the beloved? Are you in him who gave himself for you? And you say, well, how am I in Christ? You come to be in Christ by faith. You exhibit that faith in baptism. All these things, again, mark you as being the people of God, all to be accepted in the beloved. And this makes then these individuals, you and me, the object of that, complacency, of that love of complacency where God has a particular delight. 
and those that he loves. Oh yes, the love of God goes out everywhere. It comes to rest specifically on his own people. And again, as much as this may uh, cause us to scratch our head at times, we will not back away from it. We will always embrace what the scriptures sets before us. And so the fullness of time. Well, again, God makes use of time, not only in order that he might, again, show his long suffering, and not only that he might show that he is not willing for any to perish, but he also makes use of time in order to give emphasis to the responsibility of everyone everywhere to repent. Let me say that again. God makes use of time in order to give emphasis for everyone, everywhere to repent. This is exactly what was on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says this, And saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The eternal Son of God comes in time. And in time, what does he say? The time is fulfilled. It's the fullness of time. What, what is now the great demand upon humanity? Repent and believe the gospel. Amen. You see, God, the, uh, excuse me, uh, the, the preaching of repentance is never out of season. Repentance is always a seasonal message. Repentance is always that message which is needed. It's always that which goes with the free offer of the gospel. The gospel goes out and it goes out on the highway of repentance, so to speak. And so again, God uses time, as I said before, in order to show himself, again, to, be, uh, to show himself that, not, that he is not willing that any should perish. Therefore, he ordains the use of time to serve that end. Well, the second thing I want to show you from this passage of Scripture uh, regarding uh, the fact that God is not willing that any should perish is that we see in this passage that, therefore, since God is not willing that any should perish, he is particularly long-suffering toward his elect. Now, let me say this about the passage here in front of us as we look at verse 9. And notice again what, what uh, Peter says here in verse 9. Of Second Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us word. I'm convinced from the way this is written here, I think the ESV says is long-suffering toward you. The idea here is that Peter is localizing, he is focusing this element of God's nature on those that he's writing to. He is writing to those very ones who he identified in the early part of the epistle. Those who had obtained like precious faith. Those who were adding to their faith, faith virtue and to their virtue temperance and to their temperance kindness. All these things. These are the very ones who Paul says, see who Peter says in, uh, in, uh, in, in the first chapter of the second epistle that we are to make our calling and election sure. So there is a particularity about this passage of scripture. This is what Peter is bringing out. And so when he is saying these things, he is bringing to our attention the fact that yes, us. See, sometimes we don't think this way. We think that the long-suffering of God needs to be for people out there. But no, you have to understand that God was very long-suffering toward you and toward me. I don't know about you, but I can think of times where I, where I consciously knew the gospel but rejected the gospel. I think I may have said this to you before. I remember one night going to my... I was, in, I was still in the Navy at the time. I was in my, in, my, in my Iraq. I was in tears, but I didn't accept the gospel. Somebody had shown me what the gospel was all about, but I didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ. There was a reservation there. And yet God was long-suffering. God was patient with me. And this is the point that Peter's making here. God is long-suffering toward you. In a sense, that when we talk about this not willing that any should perish, it has a primary emphasis. He is not willing that the church of Jesus Christ perish, that the elect perish. 
And the elect will not perish. Why? Because God in some mysterious way exerts his almighty power in order that you and me find in Jesus Christ, oh, such a compelling Savior that there's a sense in which we can never say no to him as the gospel is offered. That's what God does. He works in the heart. The Spirit of God does that. Why was Christ more why was Christ more precious to you on one day than he was the days before that? Oh, you see, God works something in you. And there was a complex of things that he worked in you. He worked repentance in you. He caused you to see what your sins were all about. He, he, he worked faith in you. He caused you to believe the promise of God. Whereas before you may have been like a scoffer and thought, what's this thing all about? You may have been, again, you may have been even, you may have been even enticed by false teachers and then you realize this is not what the Bible teaches. And you came to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Oh, the work of the Spirit of God in the soul. How thankful that we are for that. And so Peter, as I said before, he is emphasizing this element of God's particular love to his own. One, uh, one writer says this in, in this regard. He says, I see in this passage a specific love of, of God for his elect and his ordering of time in conjunction with his long suffering to secure their salvation. The apostle in this place has special reference to the elect of God who are concerned more especially in the promise of Christ's coming to put an end to their suffering and to, rend and to render them an eternal reward. And so the idea here is this, is that however wide the passage goes, and it goes wide, and we're going to extend it wide, we're not going to cut it off at one point, we're going to extend it all the way out, but in our extension of it, we're going to make sure that it runs through the truth of the fact that God has called a particular people to himself and secured to himself those people. And so again, this is how we engage this passage of Scripture. Well, this should not be a surprise to us because God makes known His love for His church in a number of places in the Scripture. And Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, the NIV uh, translates that passage of Scripture along these lines. And notice how in this passage of Scripture there is a priority given to the church of Jesus Christ. Notice this here. Again, Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. And God placed all things under his feet, it's a reference to Christ, placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. Appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. For the church of Christ, for the church of God. God has so appointed Christ as being Lord over all for the benefit of the church. This is how God prioritizes his people. This is how God shows this particular love, this redeeming love for his people. And so again, we see this whole idea that there is this particular love, this special love that God has for his own. Now again, there's, as I said before, there's something of a mystery here. Because you and I one time were outside of that love. And yet you and I were the objects of that love, though we didn't know it. But there was something, as I said before, in the preaching of the gospel. And that's why you never leave off the gospel. Because the gospel is the means by which sinners are saved. The gospel is the means by which the elect who are dead in sin hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Amen. This is why we see Lazarus coming forth, a dead man hearing. When the eternal Son of God speaks your name, oh, the dead rise, you see. There is coming a day when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and rise. And that's not only in reference to that last day of judgment. There's a sense in which whenever the gospel is preached, this is what we see happening. Oh, preach the gospel. Make it known. I don't mean preach it the way I'm doing here, you know, three-point outline and all that. No, <laughs> no, you know the gospel. Make it known. 
interact with your friends at the level that you, that you, that you, that you see them and make the gospel known. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ, again, when speaking of the, uh, speaking of the day of judgment, uh, he says this, he says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 22, he says, except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. You see, there are particular benefits and blessings uh, that God so ordains in order, that the, in order that the elect, his people, might be kept safe. Paul took this up by way of his ministry. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. He says, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Notice what Paul is saying here. He says, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may obtain eternal salvation. In other words, there's an elect people out there who aren't saved yet. And Paul says, I'll put up with everything and anything in order that those who are elect might obtain that election to which God has called them. And so what we see here in this passage of Scripture, as I said before, is something particular, that while we have a proper focus on the wideness of this promise, on the wideness of this promise, yet we will not forget the particular element that we see here in this passage of Scripture. Well, again, this patience of God, this long-suffering of God. And again, even before we look at the long-suffering of God in detail, did you notice what, Paul, what Peter says here? The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. Now, this is an interesting kind of expression because we have an expression in our day um, that we use whenever we uh, work with people who sometimes don't carry their weight. I don't know if you ever noticed that. You know, sometimes we're sometimes we're on the receiving end of that. You know, we're like not really. But uh, we 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 have this expression that we you know the the guy's a slacker. Don't be a slacker. And there's a sense in which when Peter says the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, it seems as though the scoffers we're kind of attributing this element in the nature of God. He's a slack. He's when he says he's going to do something, he doesn't do it. And Peter says, no. He says, again, be not ignorant of this one thing. God doesn't deal with time the way we deal with time. We can't use time in, in, in order to corral God into such and such an action. Number one, no, that's not true. But number two, you're misunderstanding. God's no slacker. God is surely going to bring his promises to pass. But understand, what you seem, what seems to you to be slacking, it's God's patience. It's God's long-suffering. So again, Peter's making the point. There's no slackness in God. There's no, there's no slacking, as I said. There's no, there's no de dereliction in, uh, in, in fulfilling his promise. But what's he doing? He's long-suffering. Oh, what a wonderful attribute this is in the nature of God. The long-suffering of God. The long-suffering of God. Whether you, whether you understand or realize or know the definition of this word, I'm telling you right now, you benefit from it. And you love it because it is God's withholding of judgment to those who deserve judgment. Do you know our sins before we came to faith in Christ deserved the judgment of God? I'm speaking to the elect of God right now. I'm speaking to you as, as, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins and my sins deserve the judgment of God. And we can think back on particular sins and say, boy, if any sin deserved, deserved the judgment of God, that one certainly did. But God was long-suffering. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish. Particularly his elect, but not any as well. And so again, this idea of God's long-suffering. It's a beautiful attribute in the nature of God. In Romans uh, uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 4, uh, Paul talks about how that the goodness of God leads to repentance, that God is long-suffering, God is patient, and it's this goodness of God that leads to repentance. 
There are sinners who come to God that way, don't you know? Some sinners come to God fleeing wrath, wrath hot on their tail, so to speak. And there are others who come to God with just great stretches of mercy and compassion to open up before them. And they say to themselves, how can I turn my back again on this gracious God? This gracious God who, who I know has every right to, to judge me and condemn me. And yet he's showing himself compassionate to me over and over again. Oh, how can I turn my back on him once more? And so the goodness of God leads to repentance as well. It's kind of interesting that the idea of this, uh, this long-suffering, uh, Peter having recently spoken about the fact of God's judgment. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, uh, Peter brought these ideas together. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, Peter says this, speaking about the flood. He said, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein a few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Only eight souls saved, but it took the long-suffering of God to bring about that salva the salvation of those eight souls. Only eight souls saved, but more in one sense, from the human perspective, more could have been saved. If there were room for the animals, I'm sure there were room for some sinners. And yet these men and women, in their hardness of heart, they rejected, again, the overtures of God's grace and God's mercy. But Peter bringing these two things together, the judgment of God and the long-suffering of God, this is important. Because in one sense, this is where the, this is where the scoffers fail. They think that long-suffering means no judgment. They think that since God has not responded in, within the parameters of their time frame, then God is not going to respond at all. And Peter says, no, remember the flood. No, remember Sodom and Gomorrah. No, remember again the judgment of the angels. Don't confuse God's long-suffering with his indifference towards sin. There is a sense in which because sin is such a serious thing in God, and God in his nature holds back the exertion of his wrath in order that, again, sinners might be saved. The long-suffering of God, though, we have to comment on this. We, we have to go on more and more because it's just such a, it's such a wonderful idea. Uh, the long-suffering God of God refers to that quality in God which allows Him to refrain from punishing sinners immediately and so as to give them opportunity to repent. The concept of God's forbearance or patience or His long-suffering comes out in the Old Testament the description of God as one who is slow to anger, Exodus uh, 34, verse 6. And again, the idea here, as I said before, is that God is, is exercising this long-suffering in order that His people come to salvation. The long-suffering of God is that great attribute which he exercises towards sinners and especially those he intends to save. I want to show you this as we work through this. Exodus, as I mentioned, Exodus 34, verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. This is, this is beautiful, isn't it? God is present and making his name known, making his nature known. And did you notice how he makes his nature known in all those relational attributes which draw out from sinners, which draw out from individuals something of affection and something of a love for God? Listen to it again. Here is God speaking. Here is God identifying himself. Here is God giving the designating terms as to how you and I are to understand him. The Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Now, God could have, in every sense of the word, said he is the God who punishes sins. He is the God who exercises wrath. He is the God who will not forbear. He is the God who will not delay to show justice. But he, he doesn't show himself this way. 
There's a sense in which he makes himself appealing. He shows to himself, he shows humanity, he shows to us those things about himself that draw out all of our love for him. He presents himself to us as that one, long-suffering, patient, willing to forgive. Psalm 86, verse 15 says this, but thou, but thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. Here is the psalmist contemplating God. Here is the psalmist reflecting on God. And he's reflecting on this great attribute of God's long-suffering. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the passage of Scripture I alluded to earlier. Paul says this, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? Knowing that, knowing not that, knowing that the, uh, excuse me, uh, not knowing that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance? Why does God show himself patient with sinners? It's in order that by that very goodness they might be drawn to himself. But listen how this long-suffering is really intended to bring, again, individuals to salvation, even his people to salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. Howbeit for this cause, listen to what Paul says, Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me, first Jesus Christ, might show forth all long-suffering, now listen, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul's life is that persecutor. Paul's life is that great antagonist to the church. Paul's life is that one, again, who was doing all that he could to stamp out the work of Jesus Christ. God was long-suffering toward him. Why? In order to provide a pattern that you and I might think to our, might say to ourselves, oh, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what my sins are. You don't know how deep my hatred once ran. And the Apostle Paul says, oh, if you would know this long-suffering God, this long-suffering God, again, save this one who did everything within his power to stamp out the work of his, of his son on the earth, this long-suffering of God. And Peter picks this up again at the end of chapter 3. Listen to what he says just a few verses down from where we're looking at in verses 8 and 10. 2 Peter 3, 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation even as our brother, uh, beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given to him, has written unto you. Here you see, what, what, what is the long-suffering of God all about? Is it because he's a slacker? Please. Is it because he doesn't know time? Come on. Is it because uh, he has no ability uh, to, to bring about what he said? Is, is he that God? Is he that one who makes empty promises? No. He is doing, he is this long-suffering God, number one, in order that the elect may come to salvation. But number three, number two as well, in order that all men everywhere might know and understand that God does not will their destruction, but wills that they come to repentance. Amen. We're in something of a tension here, are we not? There's the electing love of God, and there's the universal love of God. Why do we bring these things together? We preach them both. And when a passage of Scripture is in front of us that talks about God's love going everywhere, we preach it far and wide. And when there's a passage of Scripture that speaks about God's love going to particular individuals, we preach it with all intensity. And this is where, this is where if I can put it, this is where God wants us. Could it be that God doesn't want in our minds to think that God is in this nice little neat box that we have him in? That he's all there, nothing going outside, nothing stretching us, nothing pulling us one way. God wants us in the moment of that tension. He wants me to know, yes, whatever sinner I come in contact with, tell him the gospel. Because you were once a sinner as worse as he, as bad as he was. 
And yet God wants me to know sometimes on my worst days when I'm thinking, oh, Lord God, how could you love such a one? He wants me to know and understand that there was a particular love that came my way. You'll need a better man than me to fully explain that. All I can do is proclaim it to you. But I proclaim it to you with joy and with confidence that such is the case. And so again, here is this great promise of God. And so now we come to the third point then. God is not willing that any should perish, therefore he calls all to repentance. Look again at the passage of Scripture. Again, God is not slack as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Again, this is just such a wonderful passage of Scripture. It reminds us of other passages of Scripture along these lines. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 4, almost the exact same words that, that Paul uses. And Paul says that God would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There is this general benevolence in the nature of God that desires the perdition of no person. There is this sense in which God's will can be freely known and freely expressed as that idea that he desires that none perish. We see God making this known in very clear ways. Uh, There he is in in Ezekiel 18, uh, verses 32 and uh, 33. And what do we see? Uh, God says to to, to his people, Cast away from you your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make ye a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Did you hear the words of repentance there? Turn, cast off. These are the words of repentance. And you have to understand that in all of God's long suffering, it's not in order to present a picture that God is indifferent towards sin. I was somewhat, I was offended a couple of times this week by these couple of things I heard and offended not so much by the person who said them, but offended I didn't respond in the, in, in the right way. But uh, again, heard somebody say that, you know, the, the, uh, people today are saying, well, you know, God has evolved. Uh, uh, his, his views towards sin are different. This is blasphemy. This is, again, the, the idea, oh, God is not judged in the, in the short span. He'll never judge. No, you're going to bring destruction on yourself. And so, again, the great emphasis that we have to make is that, wow, God indeed is long-suffering. His justice and his wrath will indeed fall on those who reject his son. And yet, again, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's interesting that in this passage of Scripture where we see here, again in verse 9, God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. I believe the ESV says not wishing that any should perish. We get into something of a technical uh, discussion at this point. How do we understand the will of God? Is there, a, is there a will by way of a general wish and a general disposition that goes out? And then is there a particular uh, will in God so that we might say something like this? Is there a, a general will, will of desire and then is there a general decree that God gives? So the will of decree determines what is going to happen, but the will of desire is again expressed in very large ways. And again, this is a question we're not going to, uh, again, enter into right now. But as I said before, in one sense, we don't need to try to resolve the tension, but we need to be influenced by both sides of it. Influenced by both sides of it. What do I mean? That if we are so locked into God's desire of decree whereby he ordains whatsoever comes to pass, and we allow that to be our singular motivation, we will fail to preach broadly the gospel of Jesus Christ. And conversely, if we only see the general, uh, the, 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 the general uh, uh, wish, we might say, uh, of God ex- expressed in a passage like this, 
we may fail to understand that there is a particular effective love that draws infallibly sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, rather than than trying to resolve the tension, let us allow the tension to be there. Interestingly enough, uh, uh, no one less than John Calvin uh, kind of uh, begins to interact with this in some way. And he says, he says the following. He says, some may ask uh, if God wishes none to perish. And then why do so many perish? And this is what he says. He says, to this I answer that no mention is made here of the hidden purpose of God according to which the reprobate are doomed to their own ruin, but only of God's will made known to us in the gospel. For God stretches forth his hand to all but he lays hold only on his own to lead those to himself whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world. Very difficult to to fully bring these things together. It brings us to a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. You know, the revealed things belong to us and to our children, but the secret things belong unto the Lord. There is a revealed will of God and there is a secret will of God. And some may struggle with this, but again, I think that when we look at the scripture and when we allow every scripture to have its own bearing and weight, we, we, we are led to an idea such as this. But again, what's the movement here? The movement here is to bring us to repentance. Well, then what is repentance? Well, repentance in one sense is an evangelical grace that God gives to those who upon the hearing of the gospel see the reality of, the sin, reality of their sin and the graciousness of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ becomes for them that Savior that they need above all costs. And therefore, they are willing to leave off all and any sin. You see, this idea of repentance has to do with the mind in one sense, but it doesn't stop in the mind. Repentance really, technically, in, in a very uh, strict way, a strict sense, can be, can be uh, translated as uh, uh, a change of mind. But it's a change of mind that always leads to a change of heart and a change of life. That's the thing about true repentance. True repentance is never merely intellectual. True repentance is always full-orbed. True repentance affects the entire, per, the entire person. And so for repentance to take place, what needs to be, what needs to be uh, happening, if we can put it that way? Well, number one, the, the individual must have a sight of his, his or her own sin. There can be no repentance apart from sin. And this is what is always so disappointing, sometimes challenging, with those presentations of the gospel that fail to deal with sin as sin that present Jesus Christ in the gospel as that help to particular relationships, that present Jesus Christ in the gospel as that kind of a a just needed thing that you need to get over this little hump. Well, again, the Lord Jesus Christ will do all these things, but true conversion comes with a true sense of sin. The Lord makes this known himself. Remember, he says again, the the time has come, repent and believe the gospel. He says in another place, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Individuals must be aware of their sin. This is what makes the gospel, this is what makes the word of God always so relevant. The, the word of God is as relevant as your sin tomorrow. What do I mean by that? The gospel, the word of God, is always dealing with an individual's sin, his relationship before God. And that's why people want to say, do away with this whole idea of the idea of God, and then the word of God becomes quote unquote obsolete. But man knows himself or herself to be a sinner. They know that they transgress. There is a conscience that plagues. There is a conscience at times that needs to be appeased. And that is nothing more than a reflection of our standing before God with an awareness that one day we must give an account not only to ourselves, we must give an account to God. Therefore, the scriptures say, 
Jesus offers and Jesus says, I come to call sinners to repentance. So understand for, for repentance to take place, we, we must have an awareness of our sin. The other thing I would say about repentance is this, and this is an important point, that repentance must always have with it an awareness of the mercy of God in the proclamation of the gospel message. You see, if the gospel is only preached from the standpoint of damnation, 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 and there is no hope offered to sinners, you may get a man to despair of, his, of the situation of his soul. I don't see how you can get a man to repent of that situation because you've offered him no hope. And so again, with repentance, we have, we have passages of Scripture like this. Joel 2, verse 13. Turn to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful. That word turn, in one sense, is just a synonym for repent. Repent. Why? For the Lord your God is merciful and gracious. Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, in the preaching of the gospel, Peter says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, for the promises unto you and unto your children. A desire, again, to make known the love and the mercy of God goes together with the declaration of God against sin. So an individual must be aware of his sin. An individual must be aware of the offer and the mercy of God. But when true repentance takes place, something internal happens to the individual. And that internal action is this loathing of sin, this hatred of sin, this awareness that this sin will separate me from God. And sin is the very thing that must be overcome. And repentance sees in the cross of Jesus Christ the means by which... The means by which this sin is overcome. Proverbs 28, verse 13. He that confesses and forsakes his sin shall find mercy. And so what do we do when we preach the gospel? We make sure that we understand sinners know and realize that the gospel, the offer of the free mercy of God, is against the backdrop of human sin. And should any individual again repent of their sin and embrace Jesus Christ, full salvation is offered. Why? Because God's not willing that any should perish. Why will you die? He says to Israel, turn ye, turn ye, why will you die? I have no pleasure in, 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 the, in the death of the wicked, God says. And so he makes these great overtures of his mercy. Sometimes these theological questions, they, they plague our minds. Sometimes these theological questions, they get us all knotted up. But can I say this? Can I say that there comes times... When we, in dealing with the scripture, as we preach through it in a, in a consecutive way, there are times when we have to engage these things, and then there are times when we just have to embrace the beauty of everything that's being offered in the passage. God not willing. I'm not going to refrain from saying that. I, had to, I hate to say it. I was a little disappointed. An, an old, old commentator that I have a lot of respect for said, you know, well, well, says the passage says God is not willing that any should perish. He says, well, it doesn't mean that God is not willing that any should perish. <laughs> Why would you do that? Let this text stand. Make it known that in some way, shape, or form, God desires the destruction of no one, but in another way, in a mysterious way, in a way that makes us understand that God is over and above us and greater than us. He secures to himself a particular people. Oh, wonder of wonders. You and I are that particular people. So what do we do with a passage of Scripture like this? Well, let me say this. If God is not willing that any should perish, let us be willing to preach to every individual the gospel. 
Let us not hold back the gospel from anybody, but preach it far and wide, number one. Number two, let us also remember this, how patient God was with us before we came to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. And you may be here in the midst of that whole struggle as to whether or not you are going to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Understand that God is patient. He's forbearing. He's long-suffering. But his end is the same. His end is to, is to secure you to himself. He loves you. And he desires to have true fellowship with you. He desires to say, my beloved is mine and I am my beloved. Yes, this is the, the love and the desire that God has for you. Embrace these things. Embrace these things. Make sure you preach this gospel far and wide. Make sure you tell all that God is not willing that any should perish. But never forget, never forget that God secures his love to our hearts in such a way is that we can know without question that God not only so loved the world, but God loved this particular sinner in order that I might be saved. He gave his son for me. He gave his son for you. How we thank God for this gospel message. Let's pray.